Thank you, Valerie. Open your Bibles to John chapter 18, please. There are no end to the number of uh, books that have been and no doubt will continue to be written on the person of Jesus Christ. There are a number of them that are excellent and well worth reading and there are many, many more that are not so good. A particular book that gained quite a bit of notoriety that would fall into the category of not good was a book that was published first in German in 1906 and later in English in 1909 called The Quest for the Historical Jesus. Actually, it uh, sort of sparked a, a flurry of writing that's gone on now for a hundred years and that, uh, that school of thought, that trend is picked up and carried on by a, uh, a seminary that's located the next city over from ours here in Claremont. Albert Schweitzer, you probably have heard that name, was the author of the uh, book entitled The Quest for the Historical Gen- or, uh, Jesus. He was a Nobel Prize winner in 1952, Nobel Peace Prize. He was a theologian, a medical missionary, and, and a very gifted and accomplished musician. But as a theologian, he would be a total failure. The thesis of his book was that Jesus was a victim, that he was attempting to bring on the kingdom of God, and in the process of doing that, he got himself crucified, got on the wrong side of the religious authorities of his day, and he ended up as a victim. Well, John's account for us here in chapter 18 could be, nothing could be further from the truth as John and I witness to the events It happened that night in the garden, lays out for us here. We began last week looking at verses 1 through 11, titling this Total Control. Jesus was not a victim. He was not helpless and in some way uh, began a movement that grew bigger than himself and got himself arrested and crucified. Not at all. In fact, as we began last week and we'll conclude this week looking at these 11 verses together... We said that we could note at least three facts here among the, these verses that demonstrate Jesus' total control over the whole situation. That he was not a victim, but he was a victor. He was in total control over his arrest. And we can draw comfort from that. Because if he was in that kind of control at the moment when most, in fact all, are, are uh most helpless, if he is in most control at that time, beloved, then he can be of comfort to us in control of the hard and difficult times in our own lives. Let me review here quickly for you these three facts. The first one we looked at last time was that Jesus' control of the place of his arrest. John 18, beginning in verse 1, when Jesus had spoken these words, Referring back to the words recorded for us in chapters 13 through 17 of the Upper Room Discourse. When Jesus had finished with the Upper Room Discourse, when he had finished with that section of teaching for his disciples, it says he went forth with his disciples over the ravine of the Kidron, 
where there was a garden into which he entered with his disciples. Now Judas also, who was betraying him, knew the place where Jesus had often met there with his disciples. Again, you remember that there in the upper room at the beginning, before the, the taking of the, of the Passover meal together, the institution of what we would celebrate later this morning here as the, as the Lord's Supper, before the institution of that memorial meal, Jesus gave one last plea to Judas for him to repent. And Judas, spurning that plea, Satan entering into him, Jesus dismissed him out into the night, John says. And off Judas went to enact the plan that he had made with the leadership of the Jewish nation sometime earlier in the week. Jesus, watching the clock, as it were, spends further time with his disciples in the upper room and then leaves the upper room somewhat abruptly, heading, I believe, down into the temple area, speaking there on the, his discourse on the vine of John 15, and then finishing that and moving down out of the city through the gates and down the ravine, it tells us here, verse 1, down into the ravine of the Kidron, a brook that runs down on the east side of the city. He takes his disciples with him down into that ravine, back up the other side into the Mount of Olives, and into a private garden. A garden that was there, probably a walled and gated garden. Wealthy people of the city, we noted last week, they, they had their gardens, they tended to have their gardens outside the city on the Mount of Olives, and some wealthy patron had no doubt given Jesus the key to the garden. And so he goes there with his disciples to wait for the arrest. We noted last time, if he were a victim, there were plenty of places he could have gone, could have fled, and could have hid. But instead, he goes to exactly the place. Look again at verse 2. Now Judas, who was betraying him, knew the place. Jesus went where Judas would know he would be in order to meet him there. For Judas to enact the diabolical plan that he had put in motion, Jesus said to him earlier, what you do, do quickly. Go and get these authorities that have already been previously arranged. The sham trials have all been set up. Pilate has been contacted. The Roman soldiers are at the ready. You go and you get your people and you come back. Judas, I'll meet you in the garden. I will meet you there in the garden for the final showdown. And so Jesus is very much, as we noted, in control of the place of his arrest. It was at night. Outside the city walls, it was in a place familiar to his betrayer. It was in a place where there would, no, would not be a riot. Remember just before that, the, the, uh, the uh, Sunday, uh, Palm Sunday, Jesus had come into the city. He's wildly popular. The crowds are adoring him. They're throwing palm branches and cloaks at his feet. The Jewish authorities themselves have said, we can't arrest him during the feast, during the Passover. There'll be a riot among the people. But see, Jesus has to be arrested, has to be tried, has to be crucified, and he has to be on that cross at just the right time. And so very much in control of all these circumstances, he chooses Gethsemane, and he draws his arresters to meet him there. Jesus is in control of the place of his arrest. Beyond that, we noted, partially at least last week, that Jesus controls the procedure of his arrest. Look again now down to verse 3, John 18. It says, Judas then, having received the Roman cohort, 
From the chief priests and the Pharisees, they came there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Again, you just don't get a Roman cohort in the middle of the night. You can't just walk up to the gate of the fortress Antonia, rap on the door and say, by the way, I need a thousand soldiers or I need 600 soldiers to go arrest somebody. It all has to be set up ahead of time. And so it was very much set up ahead of time here. A Roman cohort, we noted last time, a full-strength cohort would be a 1,000, a, a typical cohort, 600. Possible, the word could be applied to a group of soldiers as small as 200. But whether it was 200 or 600, not likely a 1,000, but probably 600, along with the, uh, with the police from the temple, as it says, verse 3, armed with weapons and lanterns and torches, out they go in the middle of the night to arrest this Galilean carpenter. They expect him to be hiding somewhere in the garden. They expect to have to search for him, perhaps in the trees, behind the bushes. There's a cave, we've been told, in that area. Maybe he's hiding somewhere in the recesses of the cave. They don't know whether his, his uh, band of followers are going to fight or not. So they come armed with weapons. They are ready for trouble. But when they arrive, verse 4, Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that were coming upon him, goes forth. And said to them, whom do you seek? Jesus does not wait in the garden for them. He is not cowering and hiding away. They are coming up the hill towards the garden and he goes out to meet them. They came to arrest him. He arrests them. They come and he says to them, he goes forth like a king. Verse 4, and he says, whom do you seek? Who is it that you are looking for? Immediately he's in total control of the situation. Now the Roman authorities, the chief priests, the, the temple police, the, the Pharisees, they're all there. They're the, they're the authority structure of that society, and yet he is the one commanding them. Whom do you seek? Verse 5, they answered him. Jesus the Nazarene. We are looking for Jesus the Nazarene. Now, I don't know at this point. I, I think it's possible at this point that Judas came forward. Remember, he was going to identify Jesus for them with a kiss. Mark tells us that the, the, uh, that the Greek word actually that Mark uses to describe the kiss is not just a simple peck on the cheek. It's, a, it's an intensified form of the Greek word, kato phileo, and it, it implies a repeated kissing. I would understand it to be that, that Jesus came forward and, and basically slobbered him with filthy, betraying kisses. Maybe at this time, but I think not. I think the kiss is reserved for a little bit later in a harmony of the Gospels here. And the reason I think that is because the way this scene is unfolding, I don't think that Jesus is yet ready for Judas to betray him in that despicable fashion. He is still showing to the people there and to the world that he is the sovereign one, that he is in total, total control. So I think the kiss waits a little bit later into the narrative. But again, he says to them, who do you seek? Verse 5, they answered him, Jesus, the Nazarene. And he said to them, I am. I am. In your Bible there, probably in italics, it has the word he. It has the predicate pronoun there. I am he. 
It says Judas also who was betraying him was standing with them. Jesus answers them in the most unique way. The most unique way. He reaches back, ego and me, to take the very name of God that God used in Exodus 3 to reveal himself to Moses, I am. The very name for God that is God self-consciously identifies himself with in Isaiah chapters 40 through 55, I am. Whom do you seek? They answer him, Jesus the Nazarene. He said to them, I am. I don't think it was I am he. I think it was I am. Seven times in John's gospel, Jesus uses the title for himself, I am. But he always includes a a predicate with it. John 6.35, he says, I am the bread of life. John 8.12, he says, I am the light of the world. John 10.7, I am the door of the sheep. John 10.11, I am the good shepherd. John 11.25, I am the resurrection and the life. John 14.6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. John 15.1, I am the true vine. But here there is no predicate. I don't think he's communicating that I am Jesus the Nazarene that you are seeking. And I think the strongest evidence that he is not communicating that appears to us in verse 6 that follows. Let your eyes go there. When therefore he had said to them, I am, they drew back and fell to the ground. They drew back and they fell to the ground. Upon hearing Jesus speak those words, the contingent of Roman legionnaires immediately recoil back and topple over like dominoes. The Greek word or verb pipto is what is used here where it says they, they uh, fell. It can, be, it can speak as it does in Luke 21, 24 of one overcome by a, by a superior in battle. It can communicate that. It can also communicate falling down before a, a high-ranking person or, or someone who is a divine being, Matthew 2.11, Revelation 5.14. It's used in those ways. So the verb itself doesn't exactly tell us what it was that caused the soldiers to fall down, but whether it was they were overcome by Jesus' divinity or whether it was somehow they fell down out of respect For who he was, the the point of the matter is, look again at verse 6. When he therefore said to them, I am, they drew back and they fell to the ground. 600 soldiers plus temple police plus chief priests plus Judas. Notice again, verse 5. John is very clear and concise to tell us, Judas also who was betraying him was standing with them. He blew them all over. Every single one of them were knocked flat before the man they had come to arrest. Now, some commentators believe that what happened is Jesus stepped out of the shadows of the garden and he scared them, spooked them, and they stepped back quick and the guy in the front stumbled and (laughs) fell. And then when he fell, the guys behind him fell, and pretty soon, 600 fully trained Roman legionnaires all fell over. (laughs) I don't think so. You know, we're talking about the army that conquered the world, right? Roman legionnaires, the most feared fighting force on the face of the earth. 
so close together in battle formation that the guy in front stumbles and all the rest go down like little dominoes? Little tin soldiers? I don't think so. I don't think so at all. I think what John is communicating to us here, and it's just beautiful, the way he does this, is that when Jesus reveals himself through the use of the divine name, they're all blown flat. I wonder what Judas was thinking when he's just, you know, struggling to get back on his feet. I wonder if he had any second thoughts. Verse 7. I'll insert into the white space between 6 and 7. After struggling back to their feet, again, therefore, they asked him. I mean, it's just like they're little robots. Or excuse me, he asked them, whom do you seek? And then they answer back, the little robots, Jesus the Nazarene. But I suspect they didn't answer quite as confidently this time as they had the first time. Amazing. Just amazing. Verse 8, Jesus answered, I told you, I am. If therefore you seek me, let these go their way. You see his control of this situation? They had come to arrest him and this little obstinate band of followers. They think they have the perfect opportunity now. The trap is being sprung. They're outside the city walls. It's nighttime. It's in the garden where it's a confined area. They're going to round them all up. And the, the pesky um, life of this Galilean carpenter who's been a thorn in their side for the last three years is going to be dealt with. The problem is, was when they show up to arrest him, he blows them all over. But they get up again and repeat their mission. And, and Jesus just in such control here, he, he focuses them. Whom do you seek? He says again. They say, Jesus the Nazarene. He said, I told you I'm one. So if you're looking for me, you let all the rest of them go. He's not pleading. He's not saying, well, take me, but let them go, please. He's in complete control. Total control. You know, earlier Jesus had said in John 10 Verse 17 and 18, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. That's, that's big talk, right? That's a pretty, a, a pretty bold statement to make in John 10. Here you see it lived out in front of you. They came to arrest him. He arrested them. Maybe at this point, this is probably as good a place as any to somehow see Judas coming forward now and giving, giving that, that kiss of betrayal to him. We're not exactly sure. So perhaps it's right in here. But it's just fascinating to me because when Jesus asked them the second time, whom are you seeking? They say, Jesus the Nazarene. He says, I am he. I've already told you that. Let the rest of them go. I can just imagine the soldiers thinking, don't knock me down again. You know, I, really, I think I'll, I'll, I'll obey you. I like your suggestion. Okay? I'm not really interested in them anyway. You know, we'll just tell people they disappeared into the dark or something. It's just the whole thing is in such control. It makes it very easy with such a display of power for him to narrow their focus only to him. And that's the way John sees it, verse 9. 
that the word might be fulfilled which he spoke of those whom you have given me, I lost no one. In his high priestly prayer over in John 17, verse 12, Jesus said, Father, while I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, which you have given me, and I guarded them, and not one of them perished, but the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. John sees the the immediate fulfillment of that here in this scene. Total control. Total control. Well, in what sense is it fulfilled? Jesus' prayer in John 17, 12 is talking about spiritual protection, isn't it? Right? Not one of them perished. So in what sense does John, the the gospel writer here, see it fulfilled in the protection of their physical security, their prevention of being arrested? I think it's a twofold. I think it's twofold here. First, the disciples are, are so weak, so susceptible at this point that if Jesus does not protect them, they won't survive the night. If they had been rounded up in the, in the general arrest and had been carried off themselves, their faith would have broken. So in a tremendous act of, of love and protection, Jesus shields them from persecution. He had told them earlier that they were going to have persecution, but they're not yet ready. They're not ready to be persecuted. So he steps in front of them and protects them all. Beyond that, he protects them in a spiritual sense because his arrest will lead to his crucifixion, which will lead to their redemption. So it's very much that Jesus is in the mode of protecting them, both physically and spiritually, by his control of the procedure of the arrest here. Everything working out according to his plan. The soldiers went out to round up the whole lot of them. They come home only with Jesus. Only with Jesus. So he's in control of the procedure of the arrest. Beyond that, he's in control of the purpose of the arrest. We see that in verses 10 and 11. Simon Peter, therefore, having a sword, drew it. And he struck the high priest's slave and cut off his right ear. And the slave's name was Malchus. See, I think that that's why... I, like to pl- I, I put the kiss here in terms of, of balancing the narrative. See, I think there's a couple things going on. I think the disciples are standing there and they're, and they're, they're stunned as well. They don't expect the, the Roman legionnaires to fall down at his feet. Oh, yes, he has stilled the storm. He has turned, you know, uh, multiplied the bread and the fish and fed the 5,000. He's raised the dead. He's performed all kinds of miracles. But they don't really expect before the might of the Roman army for him to knock them over. So they're emboldened. They're encouraged at this point in time. So I can see Peter drawing out his sword and saying, Okay, let's go at it. I can get two or three. Lord, you get the rest. Right? And it'd be better if you knocked them down for me. So I can see Peter. That's, that's impulsive Peter with that, that kind of response. But beyond that, I think Peter is overcome with disgust at the betrayal that occurs from within their midst. 
See, if now is when Judas comes forward and gives him the kiss, I think Peter cannot stand himself any longer. And so he reaches in, he draws his sword with his right hand, and he takes a backhand swipe at the slave of the high priest, who's pretty quick and nimble on his feet and ducks. Actually, you duck this way and off comes the ear, right? Peter's not looking for an ear, he's looking for a head. But all he gets is an ear. By the way, sword, machaira, it's just a, it's like a long knife, a long fishing knife or something like that. It's not this big, long, broad sword. It's just a relatively short instrument. It can be concealed within his robe, and out it comes. And he just takes a whack at him. Off comes Malchus's ear. Again, I'm just imagining this, the, the events. I think when that happened, out comes 600 Roman swords, right? It was like a ring of cold steel all around them. Sword play, the, you know, the Romans, they're, they're good at sword play. Let's stay away from the speaking stuff. We're not so good at that. But if you, know, if you want to duke it out with swords, we're ready for that. That moment in time, the whole band is in peril. These legionnaires would just as soon cut them down on the spot as go through the hassle of arresting them and bringing them in. So it's a very serious and tense moment. Verse 11, Jesus therefore said to Peter, put the sword into the sheath. The cup which the Father has given me, shall I not drink it? Peter, put your sword away. Luke tells us that he reached out, gave Malchus a new ear. You know, no blood, no foul. So he just puts, puts the ear right back on in place and just kind of rewinds the film. Told over in Matthew 26, Jesus also looks at his disciples and he says to them, Do you not think that I could call upon my Father and he would send 12 legions of angels? Do you think I need your short fishing knife that I could have 72,000 angels at my disposal like that? It only took one death angel to go out, go throughout Egypt in a night, right? What would 12 legions of angels be capable of doing? I mean, what Jesus has said is, listen, guys, I don't need your protection. I don't want your feeble protection. This plan must go through. The cup what the Father has given me, shall I not drink it? You've missed it. You've missed the whole thing. This, this statement that Jesus gives to Peter when he tells him, put the sword away, and then he, and then he, he says, the cup that the Father has given me, shall I not drink it? It's very strongly worded. In the Greek. I mean, Peter and whoever else, there were two swords, remember? They said, you know, you need to have a sword. Remember we told them that? Give a sword. And they said, oh, we got two of them. He said, that's enough. The sword here will completely mess it up. It's the last thing in the world that needs to happen is sword play. I am to be taken. You are to be freed. Don't mess it up with violence. 
How was Jesus going to say, as he does over in verse 36 to Pilate, take a look there, let your eyes go over. When responding to Pilate, he says, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would be fighting that I not be delivered up to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. See, there's no room for it. Peter, put your sword away. Malchus, here's a new ear. Let's forget that it ever happened. This must go through. It must go through. To intervene now, to try to let Jesus escape, would be to upend the work that he had just consecrated himself to do in tears and prayer earlier this evening in that very garden. It's got to go through. And it's got to go through exactly the way it's been planned. By the way, the fact that Peter pulls his sword just tells you that he and he as a representative of the others, they still haven't got the foggiest idea what's going on. They do not understand the passion. They've been with him in the room. He has instructed them and instructed them. He's taken them through the city. He's taken them to the gates of the temple. He's talked about himself being the true vine. He has led them through this whole process, and they do not get it. They still can't conceive of the fact that this man must go and die. They would do anything to stop it. The cup which the Father has given me, shall I not drink it? This is the very purpose, the very purpose from which I came. By the way, the speaking of the cup, that's just using Old Testament terminology. And its frequent association has to do with wrath. It has to do with suffering and wrath, the wrath of God. Spoken of throughout the Psalms, prophets, as the cup of God. What Jesus is saying to them is, the Father has given to me to drink his wrath. Shall I not drink it? This is why I came. I was born to die. I have come to this very moment to consume the wrath of God to its very dregs. Shall you prevent me from doing that? By the way, the, uh, the suffering spoken of here, it's not the physical suffering of the cross. It's not the fact that he was flogged, that he was impaled with spikes upon a, a wooden cross. Suffered by that? Yes. Crucifixion was relatively common in that time. There were many who died on crosses whose death had absolutely no effect upon the souls of mankind. The suffering that Jesus is talking about, the cup that he is going to drink here, is the cup of the wrath of God which he will personally consume. That is God's outrage against the sin of his people. There on that tree, Jesus will suffer. The separation that belongs to you and I, he himself will take. He will take on that tree our hell. The infinite 
wrath of Almighty God against the sins of His people, Jesus will consume it. So that when He finishes hanging on that tree, He will say to Telestai, It is finished. Would you deny him his mission? To deny him his mission, beloved, would be to deny our redemption. Jesus is absolutely, totally, fully in control. So what does that mean to you and I? Well, what it means, I think, is when life is falling in, when the circumstances appear stacked against you, when you have no place to turn, you can turn to Christ. For he is your great high priest. He is the one who has suffered in all things as you have, yet without sin. He's the one to whom you can go. He understands. He understands. Beyond that, he is in control. He controls his own arrest here in such, such spectacular fashion, demonstrating for all who have eyes to see and will look on that he is not a victim but a victor. That kind of divine, sovereign control he exercises in your life and mine too. Oh, we don't see it in such spectacular fashion. I dare say Jesus has not blown over your adversaries in any way that you've observed. But don't mistake the point. Jesus is still very much in control. There's a somewhat neglected doctrine called providence. We don't hear so much about it today, but really... As much of what is going on around us, what we see is that God's providential, Jesus' providential control where he is working out all things for his glory and our good. The same kind of total control that he exhibits here in this garden, he exhibits in your life and mine. That gives me hope. That gives me hope when times are hard. Beyond that, my mind goes back to the end of Genesis where Joseph confronts his brothers. You remember the story? They're, they are concerned that he will take vengeance on them now. He has been raised up to the second place in the kingdom. And they're afraid that he will exact the vengeance upon them that they justly do, are due because of the way they treated him. And he says to them, well, you intended it for evil. yes. But God intended it for good. See, Judas intended this scene for evil. The chief priests and Pharisees of the Jewish nation intended this for evil. The Romans intended this for evil. God intended it for good. And out of the greatest evil imaginable, in all the universe, the betrayal of the very Son of God comes the greatest good possible, the redemption 
not only of humanity, but of the universe itself. They meant it for evil. God meant it for good. Last week I had closed with a question. I'm going to circle back to it again this week. When those soldiers and guards there in verse 4 coming up to the garden, Jesus strolls out to meet them and he says, Whom do you seek? And I ask you again this week, you are here, whom do you seek? Why did you come? What is it you're looking for? If you are looking for relief for your soul, you can find it here in Christ. If you will but give up on your own strugglings, your own attempts at satisfying God's righteousness, you know there's a sense of guilt, you know internally that you have offended your Creator, you know that you deserve punishment. It's not a question of that you don't think you're guilty of anything, you know you're guilty. The question is, what will you do about it? Whom do you seek? Why have you come? If you will, turn from your sin. Acknowledge God's justice. Call out to Him in faith, believing that Jesus Christ went to that cross for you. That the cup of wrath of God Almighty that he consumed was your cup that you deserved. And he drank it to the dregs. If you by faith embrace these things, and the Bible says you will be saved. You will find the relief for your soul that you so desperately want. Whom do you seek? Let's pray. Our Father John records for us a glimpse of this portion of Jesus' life and rest that the other gospel writers pass by. And I thank you so much that you included this in the record for us. Because it so vividly demonstrates Jesus' total control, absolute sovereignty, complete ability to accomplish his mission, the redemption of mankind. Our Father, I pray that you would comfort us from this message, from this section of Holy Scripture. I pray that those of us who are feeling the pressures of life right now. And the sense of despair is hovering around and seeking to overwhelm us. That you would drive it back by causing us to meditate on the truth that Jesus Christ is in complete control. And Lord God, for those in our midst who do not know him in a saving way, Some are, Father, perhaps here for the very first time this morning 
who by divine appointment you have brought, Lord God, open their eyes to see the truth. Open their hearts to receive forgiveness. For those who have been in our midst longer, have been dabbling on the edges, our Father, may today be the day in which that dabbling ends. Bring them to the end of themselves that they would flee to the cross of Jesus Christ. Our Father, Jesus himself said that if he be lifted up, that he would draw all men to him. He was indeed lifted up. I pray now that your Holy Spirit would use that message to draw men and women to faith in Christ. We ask these things in his name and for his glory. Amen.